0: Welcome back to Mystical Jesus, Episode 4. In this episode, we're going to be looking at another one of the famous I Am statements from Jesus, and the one that probably got Jesus in the most controversy amongst the Jews. The passage begins with Jesus saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Any man who eats of this bread will live forever. This passage appears in John chapter 6, where Jesus is being asked by some of the Jews for a sign to prove that he really was from God. And interestingly enough, whenever Jesus was asked for a sign to validate his divinity, he would never appeal to his own merits or perform a miracle or anything of that nature. His basic response was, If you knew my father, you would know that I came from him. Actually, the very fact that you're asking me for a sign to prove I'm from God means that you don't know him. And there's another interesting passage in John chapter 5 that's similar to this, where Jesus says to the Jews, You do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So as we've already stated in this series, Jesus was never speaking as an ego or as a body. So he wasn't saying, The scriptures testify of me, the human body named Jesus. He was always speaking as the supreme I. So he's essentially saying all of those scriptures that you guys read and quote endlessly point you to the reality of God and I am that reality here and now, and yet you reject me. In fact, in John chapter 6, the Jews say to Jesus, Moses made bread come down from heaven to feed the Israelites in the desert. What sign can you show us to prove that you're from God? And in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't engage with them on their level and start scrambling to find some water to turn into wine. (laughs) He basically just looks at them and says, oh, you think that's impressive that Moses made bread come down from heaven? Well, I am that bread that came down from heaven. As a Christian kid growing up in church, I always loved reading this passage because it just proves what a gangster Jesus was. Here he is surrounded by a bunch of angry Jews with stones in their hands, ready to clobber him. And they're basically just trying to get him to admit some kind of heresy so they can get on with it. And so they're appealing to the authority of their sacred ancestors. And in typical Jesus fashion, he gives them a very fly-in-your-face kind of response. He says, "'Yeah, your fathers did eat that bread from heaven, and they still died. But I am the living bread that comes down from heaven.'" that man may eat of me and never die. Basically, a first century, come at me, bro. (laughs) So a really important question to ask would be, what does this bread represent? Obviously, Jesus wasn't recommending people start eating loaves of bread to get enlightened, although they probably would have done that if he had told them to. As he always did, he's using a metaphor to conceal divine knowledge from those who aren't ready for it yet, so as not to violate their free will. This is why he often would say, He who has an ear to hear, let him listen. So the bread of life is really a metaphor that is pointing to a much deeper truth. Now, divine knowledge is not conceptual knowledge. It is the result of in-seeing or self-awareness. And in Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage which says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, Jesus is equating bread with the word of God. And as we've said before, using the limited language that was available to him, the phrase, the word of God, was sort of Jesus' way of saying divine knowledge. This is what it really means when Christians use the phrase, the living word. Christ represents divine knowledge which became flesh and walked among us. And anyone who possesses true divine knowledge also becomes the living word. So in the Hindu tradition, the word for divine knowledge is yana, and Many of the great sages, such as Ramana Maharshi and Krishna Murti, are referred to as Yanis. And the word Yani literally means one who knows or one who possesses knowledge, which is very similar to the word Christ, which literally means anointed one. So Jesus is using the words bread and flesh to represent the knowledge of God. He who eats the knowledge of God will know eternal life. To know that God is eternal is to know that I am eternal, which means that physical death no longer applies to me. I am the imperishable, deathless reality of God, made manifest in human form. And he implores his listeners to merge with divine knowledge in this passage beginning in verse 53, where Jesus says to the Jews, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Almost all of Jesus' non-dual teachings were given in the form of parables and stories and metaphors. And here we have Jesus telling people to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which is a teaching that can't possibly be meant literally. So as we've already said, if eating his flesh has very specific meaning, it stands to reason that drinking his blood also had some specific meaning. Because Jesus was very specific in his word choices. He never wasted words, and every word he would choose had some kind of significance to it. So the question becomes, what did Jesus mean when he was drawing the distinction of saying that unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you? Yana Yoga is the masculine path to self-realization. It is an inquiry into the nature of I. I of relentless contemplation and meditation upon the self by asking the question, who am I? The more one sincerely asks this question, the more the curiosity for this question begins to grow and eventually it begins to burn away all other questions. What grows along with it is this increasing recognition that all desires the person has are actually just who am I dressed up in different ways. They're all just different ways the person believes it can find itself. I can find myself in sex or money or fame or status or success. And as this is increasingly recognized, this begins to dissolve away all the remaining karmas the person has. And really, being nothing but a collection of karma, the person dissolves away along with it. And so, once the desire for God-realization alone remains, a direct experience of the self begins to occur. Now, on the other hand, Bhakti Yoga is the feminine path to self-realization, the path of devotion and surrender, of passion and love for the divine. The Bhakti Yogi is essentially asked to give up any notion of individuality or personal will, and make their body a vessel of service to the divine. This is typically done by devotion to a guru, where the devotee follows every instruction and pointing of the guru unquestioningly, as if it is nothing but a vessel for the will of God. This practice purifies the mind from the belief in personal doership, and if one follows the path of bhakti yoga unswervingly, It will eventually lead to a state called dead mind, or no mind, which essentially is the mind being devoid of personal desires and turned inwards. But the practice of devotion must be so intense and one-pointed that you eventually merge with that which you are serving. When you lose your sense of self with the very act of devotion, a direct experience of the self will occur. So, as you can see, although these two paths use different approaches, they both accomplish the exact same thing, which is the elimination of the dream character and the realization of the dreamer. Jana accomplishes this through understanding or knowledge, and Bhakti accomplishes this through devotion or surrender. But One does not need to choose between these two paths. Both can be adopted simultaneously. And this is exactly what Jesus is advocating in this passage in John chapter 6. Throughout the centuries, different masters have taught their own approaches to self-realization. But they are all invariably one of these two paths of jhana or bhakti. Nizargadara Maharaj would teach his devotees to simply hold on to the sense of I am, like a suffocating man holds onto oxygen. At every moment of the day, as often as possible, be aware that I am and do not forget it. This represents one of the paths of jhana or knowledge. Ramdas described asking his guru, Neem Karoli Baba how to achieve enlightenment and his response was always, feed the hungry. This is the path of bhakti. The great sage of Southern India, Ramana Maharshi, was one of the few masters who taught both paths. When asked how one achieves self-realization, he would often say that there were only two paths to realization, self-inquiry and surrender. In the gospel writings that we have, Jesus seemed to be more of an advocate for the path of bhakti, commanding his followers to feed the poor, heal the sick, and love their enemies, to see God in everything, even to the point of chastising his disciples for calling him Lord, but passing by a hungry person. When you didn't do it to them, you did not do it to me. But there's also some passages where Jesus instructs a singular devotion to knowing God inwardly, such as, if you make the eye single, your whole body will be flooded with light. These are two examples of Christ teaching the path of bhakti and the path of jnana. But in this passage, Jesus gives his most radical pointing of all. It was so radical that most of his followers went away saying, This is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? But Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Are you going to leave me as well? And although their minds did not yet understand the mystical nature of his teaching, their hearts met with Christ in the place of love. And they replied, Where shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of truth. So Jesus is speaking in this passage as para brahman the realized self and he is instructing his followers to eat his flesh of divine knowledge and drink his blood of divine love the flesh is the form or the structure as light forms all of the matter in the universe light represents wisdom or divine illumination and the blood is the essence, the life force and the animating power that brings all form into life. That essence is love, the very being and nature of God. And in this passage, you can almost feel the passion of Jesus as he implores his listeners, merge with me, consume me, become one with me through wisdom and love. Jesus did not know himself as a body, but as the divine presence dwelling in it. And so speaking as that presence, he uses the body as a symbol or a pointer for it. He says, If anyone is hungry, eat my wisdom. If anyone is thirsty, drink my love. For my yana is real food, and my bhakti is real drink. These are the two archetypes of God, the masculine and the feminine, yin and yang, wisdom and love. The two are inseparable because one will always lead to the other. Knowledge of God alone creates a burning desire to experience God, and the experience of God is love. But the experience of love Creates an aching curiosity to know and understand what is the nature of this love. So to seek one without the other will always leave the seeker wanting more. But when the two are joined together, like two lovers on their wedding night, realization of the one is consummated. The divine romance of Yana and bhakti, knowledge and devotion, understanding and surrender, in seeing and outpouring, wisdom and love, my flesh and my blood.